is At Your Cervix, the podcast. The podcast where pelvic health physiotherapist Emma Brockwell and Gwanya Donnelly talk to incredible guests who help lift the lid and bust the myth on all things pelvic health. Hi everyone, I'm just jumping on to wish you a very happy 2023. I hope you had a great Christmas, you're well rested and back into the swing of things. This is part two of our special edition episode. And we're back with Claire Black, Anthony Lowe and Gronje discussing Claire's diastasis journey. In part one, we heard about Claire's postnatal journey navigating severe diastasis after her first baby. In this episode, we join them again as they discuss Claire's second pregnancy and her second postnatal journey with severe diastasis and what her future plans hold. We'd love to know what you think. Gronje and I will be back later in the year with more fab guests for season five. But for now, sit back and enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Pelvic Relief. Born out of necessity, Pelvic Relief was founded by mother of three, Eleanor Gardner, for all of those who discovered they could not access quality products and information to manage conditions such as pelvic pain, incontinence and painful sex. Led by science and quality, Pelvic Relief have brought together best-in-class products for Pelvic Relief, including Solsource Silicon and GRS Dilators, O-Nut, EVB Supportwear, Period and Incontinence Pants, EZ Magic and Yes Lubricants and Moisturisers. Gronje and I highly recommend Pelvic Relief, frequently referring our patients to purchase quality products, knowing they will receive a quality service. To visit the website, visit www.pelvicrelief.co.uk. Thank you so much, Pelvic Relief, for sponsoring At Your Cervix podcast. If I'm remembering correctly, when I first started working with you, because this journey was kind of like a curveball, like it's not something that you ever anticipate in your postpartum journey. You don't ever, as you say, you didn't hear, you didn't know of it. Um, you weren't expecting this to happen. You were expecting to bounce back. You got to a stage where you're like, I'm going to do what I can to survive this, but I'm not sure that I could ever go back to the idea of pregnancy again. It had become quite a scary time or had it? Yeah, no, that's not quite true. I always knew I was going to have a second. I always knew that. I think what was in my head was the gap that I would have between my kids might depend on what I can do with this. I wanted to make as much progress as possible. So I was always going to have a second baby. I wasn't going to let diastasis stop me. It didn't put me off in that way, but it made me pause as to when that would happen. Um, I had always ideally planned to have two years between my kids, which is actually what happened. But that is in large part down to the progress I made, which made me feel comfortable enough. Like I know what I'm dealing with now, I've got to a point where I've got stronger and I feel physically capable of potentially starting this all over again. So, And that you did. And can you, can you give um, some information about how you found the second pregnancy compared to the first pregnancy? I was a lot less relaxed. Despite the fact that I had all the information, there were a lot more downs in that pregnancy. And I actually felt guilty because I thought my first baby... You know, I, in pregnancy, I really wasn't that concerned. Like, I was quite relaxed, despite it being my first. Um, but my second, I felt this poor baby's not going to be getting a break because I feel like I'm, like I'm stressed out a lot. I think initially my concern was I didn't know how it would impact typical symptoms of pregnancy in terms of mainly feeling movement of the baby. 
Um, a lot of people talk about how you might feel tips earlier, for example, because you know what you're looking for more than anything else. It's not necessarily that you're feeling them any earlier. Um, but the difficulty was, I guess, everything had kind of compounded to make the perfect storm in a way because I also had an anterior placenta the second time, which I didn't the first. So that could have impacted it, but I was concerned that my diastasis never having fully healed, I, what did I get it down to? About five from about 11 centimeters, um, there or thereabouts. And uh, that, that concerned me because I was big, quick. Like I really popped really quick. It was really difficult to hide to the point that we wanted to. And I then started to worry about the impact on kicks and things like that. So the, I would say the first trimester, like I, I had a, a very rushed kind of, I wouldn't have said it was an emergency appointment, but it was an out of sync appointment NHS early on than I should have had because I was so worried about the baby and the movements. Um, and yeah, it was just tears of relief after that. And I, I think just, it was such an emotional <laughs> journey uh, as well as everything else that you battle with in, in pregnancy. But I, I think as much as it was still a, an emotional and a difficult time, there was no doubt that the knowledge that you all had armed me with was key because in that sense, I knew how we could go about modifying exercises. So I was still very active throughout my pregnancy. Um, I did as much as possible for as long as possible within the the kind of modifications that were suitable for what stage I was at and what was going on with my diastasis. And um, of course I did the pregnancy uh, strength and fitness classes as well. So I think that was hugely helpful because it, being active had become so important for me to managing the diastasis. I didn't want to then just stop that in pregnancy knowing that from what you had both told me that it wouldn't necessarily get worse the second time. Um, mine stayed exactly the same. It didn't get better, but it didn't get worse. So, um, and I think that was largely down to the work that I put in throughout prehab, I guess. Prehab. We always talk about the words rehab, prehab, yeah. and the context of them. And um, Anthony's very good for um, challenging our thoughts on that. What Actually, I'm going to bring you on on that um, thought, Anthony. Uh, in terms of rehab and diastasis, what, what are your thoughts? Well, it's interesting, right? Because if we see it as something that is broken or injured, well, then that's what rehab is. But it's a positive adaptation to something that's occurring in your body. So to me, it's just training. Like if you want something to perform or look in a different way, then you train for that, as opposed to rehabilitating it, which implies that there's a negative to it, right? So um, I know, look, I use the words too, but um, but yeah, like what, what does it imply? What, what's, what's the context of that? I think it's important to acknowledge that we, Claire, you were training for things, right? You were training to change your body to achieve the goals that you'd set yourself. Um, and so, and then we were preparing for your pregnancy and preparing for your birth and for preparing for the, the early postpartum period. I, yeah, I don't see it as prehab. 
I see it as training. Um, you were training. You were just doing the work. And I think it's awesome. And, you know, you are the very definition of grit and determination. Oh, like, yeah. literally, if there's a picture in the dictionary to describe it or show it, Claire, Claire Black should be definitely right up in there. Um, because I, I see it when you set your jaw, you know, it's just like, oh, you know, <laughs> believe it now. And it's like, no, nah. oh, she said it before. Here we go. <laughs> I'm pretty like, transparent. There's, there's buttons that are quite obvious that says press here and then it goes again. <laughs> <laughs> and it's often, there was one session I remember in particular where I must have made some snowballs. So I set Annie up and he took those snowballs and went with them. And I just remember Claire going, Ronya, that was you. <laughs> I didn't expect it of you. <laughs> dark horse. Dark I know. Horse. I, I just had to been exposed to him so much through our journey <laughs> that I started to pick up. Um, but one of the things too that I want to touch on is, again, we're seeing misinformation in terms of rehab or training, right? But there's not, that's not the extent of misinformation when it comes to dialysis because there's a lot of strong opinions and quite factual opinions put out there when it comes to even birth planning and diastasis and what diastasis might mean for you. Can you discuss that with us, Claire? Yeah, um, so I don't actually know where this information came about. I, I'm not one for you kind of going to Dr. Google and why would I have you two to, to speak to about a lot of things and I don't know where it came about. I don't know if it was something on social media that I had seen and um, I mean, there's a lot of things that I don't follow deliberately. I, I think I would drive myself insane if I did. But unfortunately, the algorithm picks up on things and then without even wanting to uh, happen across them. And I think something was related to just the ability to have a kind of, if you wanted a vaginal delivery, then that would pretty much be ruled out with a diastasis. And actually, sadly, that was confirmed by my midwife. Uh, my community midwife. So she was actually the same midwife that I had with my son when I went to, on to have my daughter, um, which was lovely. And she is a lovely lady and towards the experienced end of uh, the career. But at the same time, um, she was one of the first people to say, you know, given, I mean, what does that mean for your diastasis? She didn't use the term diastasis, but she says, what does that mean? Um, she says, maybe you should have a consultant's review um if you want to consider a c-section and i'm like whoa we're early kind of in the journey here this is a bit much to be considering that at the time but i was confident enough in the information that you had both given me that i was very firm and said no you know i'm not even entertaining that at this point um but it did you know despite the fact that i was very self-assured in that as i say because of the the information and knowledge you had both given me i was still there was that nagging feeling that I just had to address it with you both head on just because I think you know you just assume medical professionals know what they're talking about so if a midwife is the person who's you know trained in you know birth and pregnancy I mean despite the fact she had never been the person who brought this up to me in the first place in my first pregnancy there was a feeling of well what does she know that I don't? Um, now, as it happened, fair play to her. She'd obviously gone away and looked into this, but she also had used Dr. Google. It wasn't like it had come from any authoritative source. So for that reason, um, that's when I brought it up. And thankfully, you both were like, no, <laughs> this, is not, this is not 
true, it, there, there's no factual evidence to suggest that your diastasis would have any impact on a vaginal birth if that's how you want to go down. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I'm lucky and I have been lucky throughout this entire journey and I've said that till I'm blue in the face and I'll continue saying that um, to have you both. But what I would say is like not everyone is fortunate enough to have somebody who knows enough about it to give them that information. So for inducing kind of fear in women, I can imagine it would be so easy because, you know, navigating that even second time around with a diastasis was still pretty you know, there were ups and downs. And as I've said, it was still quite scary at times. So, and that's despite me having you and all the information that I had. So I can only imagine how it must be for women who don't know enough to go away and ask or who don't know enough because they don't have um, the same level of support. And it is, as you say, it's, it's one of those hard things because Anthony and I can only ever speak in terms of the scientific evidence and clinical experience. And certainly from our knowledge there's no link between it but it's always one of those ones that you have to be very careful in how you advise because anybody diastasis or no diastasis a medically uncomplicated pregnancy or not medically uncomplicated pregnancy anyone can end up not having the type of delivery that they want and end up converting to a section and there's always that idea of well if you ended up having a section would it have been because of your diastasis or what would have the reason and would we ever yeah. know but thankfully, we didn't have to navigate that because tell the listeners what happened, the beautiful story. <laughs> um, I Terrifying, was... but beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I was 39 weeks pregnant. Um, I had actually, I was due to have a midwife checkup that week. Um, I had had a consultant's review not out of my own doing, but I had been referred to the consultant because they couldn't decide whether the baby was breech or not, and whether the baby was head down in terms of what they would expect. Uh, I think it was 38 weeks. Um, so at 38 weeks, I saw the consultant, the scan, baby's head down, right position as well. And um, yeah, perfect. Everything's good to go. So. That was it, went away 39 weeks. Um, we actually dropped my son at my mum's because we wanted to just get a few things organized in the house. <laughs> we went to uh, the shop and all morning I had had, I had never had Braxton Hicks in my first. Um, and I assumed that's what it was. It was kind of like a tightening. And it was a wee bit uncomfortable just due to the size of me and obviously where the baby was lying at that point, but I didn't think much of it, went on the dog walk you know, did all these things, standing in the shop, and I was like, hmm, and then Alex was like, you know, this would be, my husband said, this would be funny if you were in labor right now, and I was like, hmm, yeah, that would be funny, got to the checkout, I think I'm in labor right now, we're going to have to, <laughs> so we left, I came back to the house, and I was like, I can't believe how intense this is, this is like no let up at all, I felt between contractions, I was like, this can't be right, there's maybe not something else going on here and um I'm actually trying he sorts himself lunch you know he's like <laughs> running around for the Hoover like Coach real, Alex. <laughs> real priorities at that time hoovering in case my mum has to come in house, like because like we don't want my mum coming in hoovering and I am literally on knees against the couch like this is just so intense and uncomfortable um 
I, I didn't even take paracetamol or anything and I was like we have to go <laughs> so he's pretty too busy hoovering I literally called him here to get my hospital bag he was like I'll do it what are you doing but I was like nope stubborn as always I went upstairs got my own bag and um, got into the car tried to phone the hospital couldn't get through and I was like we're just gonna have to go anyway because this is just not like it was before and um, finally got through on the phone and of course at that time there was still COVID protocols so the midwife basically asked me have you got COVID yes or no I said no so what I didn't know was afterwards she said I could tell that I wasn't going to get the full and frank answers out of you so I just went straight in for have you got it yes or no okay come in so anyway got to just really unfortunate where our hospital is it's 20 minutes away in the car like at best um, and it wasn't too bad it was like mid-afternoon there wasn't traffic but I there's so many roundabouts I don't know if anyone's been in labour and roundabouts but it I felt it was the most uncomfortable thing in the world and I was literally almost hovering over the seat because I was it felt like I was on fire like it was unbelievable so um I came out the uh, car and I was pushing I, I literally got to the hospital car park at the bottom of a hill had to be a man that designed that put a maternity hospital on top of a hill for women to climb up in labor but i got to the car got out the car pushing and i said to alex i'm pushing so i thought i climbed really far up this hill apparently i really didn't <laughs> um you know perception at that point um, he had to run into the hospital, but the delivery unit's locked and it's up the stairs. So he had to go into the antenatal part. And I felt so bad for the woman who must have been like, what is going on? There was a pregnant woman trying to come up the hill who had stood with me until he came back because he had to just like dump the bags, run. They brought out a chair and then before we knew it, there was a bed being wheeled out by five midwives outside into the car park. And I got on the bed and they like rushed me in I wasn't even I remember seeing the desk and like and just being in the lift and then I it took me a second and then I realized that I was in the same room that I gave birth to my son in which had the birthing pool which was all part of my grand plan that I would have loved to have the birthing pool and I took one look at it and knew I'm not getting in that today <laughs> And uh, somehow, I mean, I wasn't even dressed appropriately. I had jeans on, you know, you want to be comfortable. I had jeans on. This is how unprepared I was. Somehow they managed to get me off the bed onto the actual delivery bed. And um, yeah, they were like, oh, okay, we're not even going to get you checked in. This baby's coming now. The head is there and this is it. So no painkillers, no pain relief. I, there was no time. I literally did it on nothing. Um, and then, yeah, she came out and... Yeah, the, this time I was quite chuffed. I'd, I'd only grazed very minorly. Um, you know, despite the fact I wasn't on anything, despite the fact I'd had an episiotomy first time. And it was the most intense. There was just no let up in between. Um, but then, you know, from the point of view of my diastasis, it sure as hell didn't stop me. <laughs> Definitely, <laughs> not. <laughs> Definitely not. I, I remember the outrage that somebody suggested to you that it's going to affect your delivery. And then, what was it, half an hour? Was it half an hour? Uh, 13 minutes I, I pushed her out in, yeah. Yeah, 13 minutes of second stage, right? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But like, it wasn't very long from when you decided, oh, no, I think we're in labor. Yeah. Because you are a tough cookie. 
you probably were in labor for 10 hours, let's face it. But you were just like, nah, I might have ate something. Nah. Braxton Hicks. Nah. You know, and then he's like, wonder if you've got any beer in labor. He's like, maybe. And then he's like, ah, oh, yeah, I think I am. <laughs> I love yeah, the idea of Alex. <laughs> Alex sitting hoovering and faffing and sorting himself. Like, I think there's women around the country are all going to relate to this because I think it's some circumstance we've all been in the situation where we're like, do they not realize that I'm in labor? Yes. Well, the thing is, here's the thing, right? I think Coach Alex was prioritizing what is going to be more painful having <laughs> a mother or a mother in law judge your house. <laughs> versus your wife in labor it is obvious that the mother or the mother-in-law is a more painful situation priorities <laughs> oh it's so funny because i love i i i think of my own situation when it came to baby number four you know if you've done labor a couple of times the novelty is there but like it gets you get more used to it and you get accustomed to it and you're not as um well certainly the males aren't as scared about it so i nearly remember i remember laboring and getting up out of bed and coming down and being like, I think, I, I actually think I'm getting contractions. And I must have had a couple of nights where I was getting them, probably Brax and Hicks, and then by the morning they'd wear off. So yeah. I thought it was like, yeah, kind of like, sure. Probably like the girl who cried wolf, kind of like, sure. And I remember being like, I actually think I'm in labor. And he's like, okay, we should call me if you need me. And I was like, I kind of do. But I went in and I was already like seven centimeters. So I was like, I was in labor. I knew yeah. it as I labored on my own. Um, but that well, shows it so... Him? You saw Claire the first time. You must have been close to giving birth. Were you Me pregnant or were you? 2019, um, because I saw you in February 2019 at Belfast. And that's when you find out you you were privy to you were privy to it earlier was, than anyone I was else. Early, right? Yeah. So yeah, Anthony came to Belfast to deliver one of his courses, and I attended it in Belfast. And then um, it was in one of the CrossFit gyms, and it was fantastic. And I uh, remember. Degree. Yeah, it was very, very cool. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, all of us were like in quilt jackets and still freezing. But um, that's, that's the CrossFit life. I've, I've come accustomed to it. Um, but I remember telling Anthony, giving him a heads up that I've just found out I'm pregnant because um, I might scale back from certain things. And then at one point when we were doing something, you're like, go on, Corny, you can keep going. And I was like, oh, can I? Okay. And then you're like, oh, I forgot. Not that it would have mattered. What I was doing was totally fine. But you were like, totally forgot. But yeah, no, I was actually postpartum at that stage. I think I had had Ada in the August and I was talking to Claire October or November because I remember your first pictures in November, but it was around that time. October, yeah, it was October. Um, and yeah, you you had Ada in the August because she was on one of our consults. Oh, very good. Yeah, bring bring your child to work day. Very professional, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but It's a long commute for you. Yeah, <laughs> no, I know, down in my clinic. Um. I think that we've touched on a lot of things that are really, really eye-opening to people. And I love the fact that your journey turned out the way it did. As much as it was scary and rapid, it's nearly that your, your body did what it was meant to do. It's nearly like our bodies are made to birth babies. And you had a very, what I would call, spontaneous, natural delivery. Um, and it flew in the face of a lot of the medical advice that we're being given in, in defense of people, I can understand why people might reason that can't have um, a natural labor that might be compromised with diastasis because sometimes when we do have diastasis and we, our bump is so big, it nearly looks like it's lower than the pubic bone. So people probably think, well, how? But, but Anthony, all as I love his um, description, I'm going to let you do it about the baby, Anthony. Ah, well, when somebody said to Claire, 
that, you know, you're going to have trouble because of how low your baby's sitting. Like, you know, I, I was imagining that, you know, your poor baby was, was like um, Sylvester Stallone, one arm on the pubic bone, having to try climb their way back into the pelvic basin so that they can be delivered. It's like, it's ridiculous. It's not how it works. The uterus is so big and strong for that reason. You know, you don't need your rectus to be doing that. Like you can give, like there've been people that have given birth unconscious vaginally. So, you know. Yeah, in comas, people in comas have given yeah. birth, their body's just done it. But it is that fact that like the uterus is still connected to the top of the vagina. Like, you know, the uterus is connected to the vagina. You know, when you think of the song, like it's like, and then at the cervix, right? It's it meets at the cervix. I thought at I'd get that cervix. one. Cervix, I like that, Anthony. Oh, I should have been quicker at that. Um, thank you, Anthony. Um, but so you had your delivery. You were, and in some elements, it can be a bit of a like, oh, I'm back to square one. Okay, so for Claire, you had the baby, you got through it, and you've been keeping yourself focused the whole time. You're going through pregnancy. You're getting to that end point of having delivery, and that's where the focus is. And then suddenly, you have, thankfully, lovely, healthy baby, lovely, healthy mommy. But then it's kind of like, what now? How did you find second time round with postpartum recovery? It was quicker in the sense, obviously, that I didn't have the episiotomy as well. So from that perspective, I was probably a lot more mobile the second time around. Um, and th that is no doubt in large part as well to how kind of fit I'd kept myself during my pregnancy, like as active as possible. I definitely felt stronger quicker in terms of you know being able to lift the baby or you know before I really struggled for the first couple of weeks in my first uh, postpartum trying to like you know kneel down on the floor for example to change my baby I would do it at the changing table instead whereas this time I didn't really have that um yeah so I as it took me a, a few kind of days to kind of work myself up to check how bad or not it was going to be in terms of the gap um, and there was a moment where I was just like lying back and I was in that room that I had been doing most of the rehab for the best part of a year just so well a year and a half almost and I was just like I can't believe I'm back here again like this has got to start again I've got to start with these slow and gentle exercises and I am months away from what I want to do and there was a part of me that knew like it would be different this time because I had you all in situ. I, I was very lucky to have that ongoing support and it wasn't going to take me to have to, to go through that starting process of, you know, getting a referral and, and when would the first appointment be, but there was an element of, Oh, here we go again type thing. And I know exactly what's involved. And yes, that's, that's good in one way, but in another way, it was like, I knew the size of the mountain to climb again and that was quite disheartening in a way because I knew how much work and how hard I had worked the first time because I did actually make the aesthetic changes in the first time that I I wasn't perfect I knew I wanted more but it was a lot more manageable and I could live with it and this time around there was a definite doubt I had set myself a marker which was great but what if I didn't achieve that what, what if I didn't get to that point again? What would happen then? How would I feel? And that definitely crossed my mind in the first couple of weeks. Yeah, and you, as you say, you progress quite quickly functionally and you achieve anything you put your mind to functionally. And funny, when Anthony was talking earlier about doming and we were talking about how you never really got to the point of your limitations with doming, I was actually thinking of the time you sat in a 
five minute plus uh, V sit up just to um, replicate a study. And I was like, you know, if you can do a five minute V sit up and manage everything, okay, I think, I think we're good. Um, so, but you got to a point where you knew that the aesthetics was not going to change in the way you want, as particularly not as rapidly as way you want. There was always a question, will, it, will there be any changes or adaptation because you've been high level loading and you're not getting the same outcome as the last time. And where did that take you to then? You, you I suppose it, it, it took you on a journey that's still ongoing. Yeah, so I think the biggest change this time around was just how quickly things turned around, as, as you mentioned there. In terms of function, it was rapid. Like, I was, I was in it for the long haul, expecting a similar kind of timescale as before. It was rapid in terms of what I was able to achieve. It was, it was kind of like every time we were meeting, it was like, boom, onto the next, boom, onto the next. It was, it was unbelievable, really. And I was pleasantly surprised by that because, again, the function was just as important for me. It really was. And I knew that if I could get back to a level of exercise that I enjoyed, that would make it more bearable. Like from a mental health aspect, that would make it more bearable for me, where I could challenge myself, where I could properly push myself hard, um, which is kind of what I'm about in case anyone hasn't picked up on that. Um, so uh, that was really important for me. But there was that nagging doubt that I just thought this could be different this time in terms of the aesthetics and got to the point where I joined um, CrossFit, which uh, I think was probably on the cards from the first time. The way things were going with rehab crept in quite a few times in terms of different movements. And it suits me down to the ground. It's push yourself hard. So many things that you can aim for, so many things you can work on and improve, and you're never really perfect at anything. So you're constantly working at it. Um, it's hard, hard work, but it's it. That's what I find most rewarding and enjoyable. So for me, it was it was the perfect thing that I could have picked up, which I probably never would have before. That's the best of it. But it then started putting even more doubt in my mind. Well, I I knew I was loading at the highest I had ever loaded I knew that I was functionally progressing at a quicker rate the first time than the first time so why then were the changes not coming the same way and that's still the case now I mean there's been marginal change and funnily enough kind of in the middle of I would say I wasn't quite a year postpartum it was just maybe before that Every couple of weeks, there were, there were minor changes at my abdomen. I was noticing changes at my tummy. Um, and then again, it just stopped. I stopped seeing those changes, and um, I'm pretty fully hyper aware of everything going on with my tummy. And you would argue that, okay, maybe I didn't see the change, but others did, but it just wasn't the case at all this time. I definitely knew that there wasn't the change that I had anticipated would happen this time. And so what lies ahead? Well, um, actually, this is preceded well before postpartum too, but I had made the decision in about 2020 that I would be going down the route of surgery for me. Um, so that is the plan for January of 2023, I hope. I, I have no shame in you both know this and we've made a couple of jokes about it. I'm just desperate now. Mm -hmm. I am really desperate. I am desperate to get it confirmed officially and get it booked in. I am desperate to have it and hopefully crack on with what will hopefully be my last chapter of rehab. Um, I think, you know, I tried playing it cool for about five minutes. Um, 
it really wouldn't work. And failed. No, and you, well, I did fail. I did fail, as you both know. We've made a few jokes about this. Nobody else knows that, but they all do now. I'm it now. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's been the longest year of my life, possibly one of the hardest years of my life, mentally. Um, just really, I think, you know, I made that decision a long time ago, not that long after I made the decision about who I wanted to do the surgery. Um, and I'm just kind of stuck at the minute. I'm in limbo. I'm not really moving anywhere fast. And I've not even had the kind of benefit of those aesthetic changes to make it more bearable in the meantime. So, yeah, it's been tough. Um, but I'm looking forward to getting that done out the way and then hopefully see where we go from, from there. If I could add just really quickly too, this year has been really hard, not because of the diastasis, but because you've been unwell so many times and it's interrupted your training. Yeah. It's interrupted your, you know, your mental health really, because your ability to train and be active is so important to that, as we've discussed yeah. earlier. So, you know, it's, it's important to acknowledge that a lot of this is outside of your control which makes it much harder right like if it's in your control you can do something about it but like you've got two young kids you you know you got sick so many times it's very frustrating and um you know like i said you're the definition of grit and determination um it's it's good and it's exciting and well, I'll be in um, I'll be in Dublin in January, so hopefully we get to see you just before you have the operation. I really do want to, yeah, I do want to catch up. And um, so if people are coming to that course, hopefully we've got Claire there, and Gronya is going to come at least for dinner and the socials. At right? least for, I'm definitely turning up for the socials, um, <laughs> but we can put a link to that course in the show notes too, because if there's still spaces on it and people haven't been aware of it, we'll um, signpost some information to it. And it's funny too, because to throw everything that Anthony's um, talked about into the mix of the fact that you've returned to work as well. So you've, you've, you're a busy career woman. You know, you have to think about all these plates that we spin. And I think sometimes we take that for granted because it just seems to be the norm now that women go back to work and do everything. And it's huge. There was, go back a few generations and women had families and they didn't work. There wasn't that expectation because having a family was enough demands on them and it was recognized like that. Whereas now we live in a modern world where we're trying to do elements of both. And that, takes its demands on all of us and throw then a diastasis journey into the mix. And there's so many things to consider, but I'm so happy you've touched on some of the difficult parts of it, Claire, because again, I think that's part of the taboo where all too often, as you've mentioned, the mental, I suppose, challenges, challenges inside of things isn't often talked about as much as it should be or the impact of it or the significance of it. And I think you've done a really good job at um, raising awareness of that and giving a real authentic insight into it. Because if anyone eventually tunes into, because um, Anthony has been tracking your journey for his upcoming diastasis project and you have been certainly the first part of your journey has been um, in terms of pregnancy number one has been part of my DAS's course. So some people will be familiar with some of the consults we've mentioned in this um, discussion. But what's the feedback from anyone who's taken my course has been is that it's a real fly on the wall insight. It's not scripted. It's not kind of polished and, you know, cuts edited out and only the shiny, really good stuff that's going well being shown. It's actually the 
well, what's happening, what's not going well, what are you frustrated by, what do you find really actually difficult to navigate? That's been, I think, really brilliant and all and relates to people on a human level. And um, so again, thank you so much for that. And I'm excited to see what the next step of the journey holds for you. I know it's long and it 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 seems like every day is so long for you at this present moment in time. But once we're getting we're getting closer to Christmas and then suddenly it's it's going to pounce upon you. It's like pregnancies, they seem long until the end. Um, but what I want you to do is, if possible, at some point in 2023, we should revisit this conversation to get the aspects of it on the next leg of the journey. Happy to do so. Yeah, thank you. Definitely happy to. Good. I can tell you the training that you'll be doing, and it may be called rehab because it is an operation. It won't look very much different. It's not going to look very much different. Not from my point of view, anyway. You're going to have, you're going to kick ass. And yeah. Um, yeah. We're talking about the topic of diastasis here. What message do you want to listen? Anyone listening? What is the key thing you want to put out there? Claire, I'll start with you first. So I had three because I do my homework and I know you normally ask for three. Uh, so for that, um, I would say the first thing is to get the right level of support. If that's a mixture of fitness professionals as well as physios, um, they should really be supporting you towards your goals. They shouldn't be putting fear into you and you know preventing you from achieving them. They should be finding ways to support you to get back to where you want to be. The second part really relates to that mental element. The support network is, is huge for this because it is a mental condition as much as it is a physical one for a lot of women. So I think you have to be prepared for what that looks like and you have to be prepared that, you know, you can't shoulder that on your own. I'm very lucky, you know, I've got you both and also obviously my husband is a huge support to me as well as other people. But um, I would say like that is really important to bear in mind that you know, there are going to be really, really tough days. You have to be prepared for that. And, you know, ideally you would have someone to, to speak to about that. Um, my messages are always open for anyone who, who feels that they, they want to get something off their chest. The final thing is I would probably tell women, you are much stronger than you think you are and you're way more capable than you realize. So don't for a minute think that you're broken because of this or that you're fragile or anything like that. I know from my own experience, you know, I have achieved far more than I have now. I am stronger than I am now. I, I'm stronger now than I, I was prior to pregnancy. So that's a really key thing that women shouldn't be going around thinking they're broken as a, as a result. I love those. They're really key messages. I'm going to fire it down across the world to Anthony now and you tell us what your key messages are for any listeners. Yeah, I think like, honestly, I think Claire encapsulated them beautifully. Um, I, you know, find a provider that will support you. Um, one who makes you feel strong, capable, adaptable and resilient right off the bat, just by default, if you walked into the clinic or even hobbled in, you are doing already lots a lot more effort than lying down doing bent knee fallouts and leg slides and isolated muscle work. So, you know, just default believe that people are strong, capable, adaptable and resilient. And if we see diastasis as a positive adaptation, 
to a situation, usually pregnancy in, in, in postpartum women, well then let's load it and positively adapt it with training to what they want to do. So again, Claire mentioned, you know, focusing on what their goals are and then just work through that. Um, and I think that the other thing, which is what Claire said, it's a whole person problem. It's a cultural problem. I think diastasis is a cultural problem because of the negative messaging of, oh, I still look pregnant. Whereas, you know, Rubens in his day would have really appreciated the curves. Whereas these days, if you don't look like, you know, you belong in a bikini at the age of 60, what have you really been doing with your life type thing? You know, like that's just ridiculous. Um, so I think recognizing the whole person and, and, the biological, the psychological, as well as the sociological uh, contributing factors to the experience of having the diagnosis of a diastasis, you know, like we shouldn't have to blame, uh, we shouldn't have to call it an injury so it gets taken, uh, so it gets taken seriously. We shouldn't have to say that it causes other things when the evidence for that is not there just so that it gets taken seriously. We shouldn't have to lie so that the medical system takes it seriously. If it's a problem, it's a problem and that's it. It's just a problem, it's multifactorial. So strong, capable, adaptable, resilient, um, you know, whole person approach focused on achieving your goals instead of, you know, qualifying to do loaded exercise, despite the fact that we're talking mostly about postpartum women who are wrangling children, doing far more pressure activities than what we're training them for with the little itty bitty exercises. So keep it functional, keep it focused, and just default believe that people are actually strong, capable, adaptable, resilient. I love that. And you're right, Anthony, it's like that double-edged sword of the fact that in my head, I want the narrative and diastasis to change so much for the future gender. Like I look at my daughter and I think we need to change something about the societal perceptions of things now so that they have a better chance of a less, you know what I mean, it not impacting them as much. But then there's that trade-off of the fact that many women who are facing it in order to get the funding need to pathologize it because that's the only way they're getting listened to. So the systems and the structures and the societal perceptions of it need to change. But this has been, oh my goodness, like I'm looking at the time, I didn't even realize how long we've been talking. It's been amazing. I could listen to you both all day. Claire, your story, even though I knew it, I'm like, you just captured me today. I, you know, I could listen again and again. It's fantastic. And I can't wait to share this with our listeners and stay tuned. We will be back in the new year for the next leg of the journey with the team. And thanks everyone. And We'll see you soon where hopefully Emma will be back and we will be at your cervix. Thank you for joining us on this episode. We'd love to hear your feedback and any questions you might have. So please do contact us via Instagram at at your cervix underscore the podcast or Twitter at at your cervix underscore PM. That's a wrap for season four. But if you have any guests you'd like to hear from or any topics you'd like us to cover in season five, then do let us know. Don't forget to check out our fab sponsor, Pelvic Relief. You can find them at www.pelvicrelief.co.uk. Please continue to share any past episodes and, of course, drop us a review. Lots of love and see you soon. Emma and Gronje.